Hi, this is Pastor Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for joining our podcast. We're walking through the book of Luke, thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, to see the world the way he does, and to integrate his patterns into our life. I hope you enjoyed the sermon today. I also want to point you to the description section where you can find the church's website. We would love for you to visit our church and consider investing in our ministry. There's two other links. One is a podcast I do with a therapist at Renew Church, and we kick around issues like dating, mental health, and friendships. And lastly, there's a children's book series and a journal that I wrote with my wife and my mentor, and we'd love for you to look at those resources as well. Thank you so much for being a part of the Renew Church family, and I hope that you enjoyed the sermon today. God bless. All right, good morning, everyone. It's 9.30. I have a bunch of material to work through. I apologize early. Um, Here we go. So when I think about wartime Jesus, I think about how much the Jewish nation desired for a war hero. And they've seen it in the past. They've seen Samson. They've seen Elijah. They've seen Moses. It was modeled to them, this type of military military leader. But nowhere then in that moment did they need this kind of hero, this savior more. We think about Herod who killed all the children under two years old in Bethlehem because he felt threatened. Uh, Augustus said it's better to be Herod's pig than his son because he killed a bunch of his sons when he felt threatened that they wanted his throne. I mean, that's insane. And he believed that the Jewish nation wouldn't mourn for him. So he, in his deathbed, was commanding their most loved Jewish leaders to be rounded up. And he says, when I die, kill them so that they'll cry at my death. We're not sure if that actually happened in terms of the, the killings, but we know that he gave this instruction. So he was a brutal leader. Um, The Jews under the Roman Empire was taxed 70 to 90%, and there was just complete tyranny. And so their vision of a Messiah became more and more concrete when under this type of Roman oppression. And so in the next slide, the the Jewish understanding of the Messiah in Judaism is that the Messiah would be a future Jewish king from the line line of David that the king that David was, the kingdom that he set up, was just a shadow of the, of the king that the Jewish people were longing for. And so under Roman tyranny, it would be a Messiah who would come, rage war against the Romans, overthrow them, and take back Jerusalem and Israel, and, and eventually be able to bless the whole world with peace. So I think about Jesus' power at wartime, because I, I believe that there's a paradigm in which the Jews were looking at Jesus and his disciples, where they're just waiting for him to, he's like demonstrating his powers. And, and part of how they saw it was, oh, this is how we're going to fight the Romans. I think that that's part of how they saw it. Actually, in, in war, I've listened to a lot of Ukraine and, Roman, and uh, Russian podcasts, and there's a term in military called demonstration where you're not engaging the enemy, but you're just showing them what you can do. Like, like there's a river that they can see, but there's no, artino- uh, there's no threat, but they're just showing you, we can cross this river. We have the capability of doing this so that the, 
the enemy needs to now man all these river crossings. So you're, you're placing all these threats in front of them to, to defend. And so there's a part of how Jesus is doing miracles that I think the disciples and Jews are seeing it as demonstrations. This is what's possible. So him feeding the 5,000 is a, of huge military significance. You don't need a supply line. You don't need very much funding. Just give everyone a sword, gather a crowd, and all of their physical needs are taken care of by feeding. Now, I don't know what beats healing and raising the dead because we have Peter charging like the Roman uh, soldiers. He's like, you know, I'm just going to go for ears. And, <laughs> and if someone cuts off my arm or stabs me, like Jesus can just heal me. I've seen him heal people who have legs and arms that don't work. I've seen him raise the dead. Like, can you imagine a general just raising the dead and be like, oh, you killed him? He's ba you're basically an immortal army if the general can raise the dead. And, and they see Jesus raise the dead. They saw him raise the dead twice. They, and they think about Ezekiel, where Ezekiel raised a whole army of dry bones um, from the ground. And they're like, man, Jesus, Jesus is going to make us invincible. And then we think about his control over the weather where he calms the storms. He's like Storm in X-Men. Is that, no, okay, Elijah. I was going for Nate, but I got Elijah. Um, he's able to control the weather. And just a few verses after, the disciples are walking through Samaria. They don't welcome him. And so they're like, hey, should we call fire down from heaven? You know, because you have control of the weather. We saw Elijah do that, consuming small armies of 50. Like, let's see what Jesus can do in wartime, because that was how they were seeing um, what it meant to follow him, what it meant to, for him to establish his reign and rule. So now let's look at Luke chapter 9, verse 43 through 45. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did and the list of miracles that I just um, articulated, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of man. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. So I believe that as the disciples were having conversations of what it meant to push the Roman military out of Jerusalem and Israel, as they were talking about the greatness of God, Jesus says, I'm going to surrender into the hands of man, that this ends in my surrender. That's what he's saying. And his disciples are like, okay, Jesus is a little tired. He's probably burnt out from ministry. Maybe he had too much wine. Like, let's move on, right? And then the disciples start talking about the complete opposite of Jesus. No, Jesus, you're sitting on the throne. We're going to be people right next to you. Simon the Zealot's like, I'll be the five-star general. None of you guys have military experience. I'm obviously the best warrior. Judas is like, I'll handle the national treasury, you know? I love money. Matthew might be better at accounting, but I love money more than him. Peter's probably thinking, I want to be the vice president, right? He's the leader of the disciples. Now he gets to be number two in command. And this is a reoccurring conversation. We think about the mother of James and John asking Jesus, to have them sit at his right and left hand, to give them the most power out of all the disciples. And this erupted jealousy, anger, and bitterness among the disciples. 
uh, it was a reoccurring conversation. Let me read the rest of the text to you. <clears throat> An argument started amongst the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand before him. Then the child said to, then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master, John said, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is with you. All right, in the next slide, again, there's this argument of who would be the greatest. Um, and I believe in the next slide that they had this very worldly, uh, the slide with the triangle, this, they had this very worldly concept of what it meant to be a leader. And this is how we all see leadership. Um, this is the, the water we swim in, where the CEOs, the people who are most powerful, most beautiful, most famous, most accepted are at the top of the pyramid, and it's a diminishing, you know, there's diminishing slots, and Jesus is putting children at the bottom of the social pyramid. That's how they were seen in the ancient world. There's a, a rabbi who said, hanging out, talking to children is basically like getting drink, day drinking and not going to work, sleeping in it's going to destroy a man. That's how they saw children, a very lowly view of them. And so children represented the powerless, the marginalized, and then there's the powerful people in the world. So how do we create like a prideful or narcissistic leader? Well, we welcome and cater to the powerful. His disciples attached themselves to Jesus partly because they thought he would just ascend the world order and that he would, they would be brought alongside of him. And we think about the companies we work for. We think about the tables at lunch. Who are the popular kids, right? Who are the people who can give you a promotion? Those are the people that everyone is catering towards. Everyone wants to help. Everyone wants favor from. Um, using power to be served. A, a self-protection by putting other people down. Again, I see this all the time in junior high and high school where we were trying to protect our, our bestie. We're trying to protect our group. We're trying to protect our social ranking. And so we gossip about other people. We leave other people out. We want to communicate, hey, they're my close friend, not yours, right? And then sadly, that is true all the way through our lives. Whether you're in politics, we saw Congress picking fights, good times. Bernie Sanders is like standing between two congressmen who have thought that would happen. And then we see the pride of world leaders as Putin um, puts his own sons, uh, sons of the, the country in danger or in, in death. So, so this is the way the world um, sees leadership. It's self-protection, power, using power to be served, asking other people to sacrifice and lay down their lives to promote uh, their own status from the brutality of war to corporations to high schools and also in our family units. We could have power struggles with our kids and our husband and wives. We could pull out archives of what they've done wrong in order to gain power and win an argument. This is how the world sees leadership. And then Jesus in the next slide flips the chart upside down, right? He sees leaders as the bottom, wanting to serve, promote, and honor people at the top who are the children and the powerless. To be a, a leader in God's kingdom means to 
to welcome and care for the weak. That's what he's talking about in terms of children. To use power to serve others. To desire others to go beyond ourselves. And leaders sac- the leaders in God's kingdom sacrifice for others. We're going to go one by one through these four points and then we'll, we'll be done. So the first point is leadership in the world welcomes and caters to power. But leadership in God's kingdom welcomes the weak. And Jesus says that to his disciples. You want to cater to the religious elite. You want to cater to um, the, the politics and the stakeholders of our time in order to promote me as king. But I'm telling you to turn your eyes to the little ones. And then we see Jesus do that over and over again. That instead of sitting with the best and the brightest, he invites himself to the house of a tax collector. Instead of sitting with the wealthiest in the community, he sits with the woman at the well who's rejected. And he's calling his disciples to see, to welcome, to lift up the weakest and the most powerless in society. So who are some of the people that I've welcomed that the world ignores? How have I welcomed Jesus through welcoming the weak and powerless that he loves? You know, I remember uh, being in school, and at that time uh, in my school life, I felt really rejected and bullied a lot. And I still remember this kid. His name is Adam, and he was really popular. He was taller than all the other kids. Everyone wanted to sit with him in class. When there was free seating, it was like he was sitting in the middle, and there would just be like ranks of other kids wanting to sit next to him. And one day there was an empty seat, and he's like, Wilson, come sit next to me. It's like, I don't deserve to sit at your right hand. And I seriously believed that with all my heart. And he's like, no, just come sit here. It's cool, man. And I remember sitting next to him, and I remembered that from 35 years ago. That's a long time. I hope that if you're at your school and, and you have, you people like you, that they look up to you, that, that 35 years later, someone in your class will say, hey, they invited me to eat lunch with them. They said hi to me um, and, and took time to see me. They reached out. And it wasn't because I was popular. It wasn't because I was pretty. It wasn't because I was smart. They just saw me. I hope that in our companies and workplaces, I hope that in the, in the coffee shops and places that we reside, we would see people. And we would see people because that's what Christian leadership looks like. Even our, at church, are there people that we just walk past or through? Because, oh, they're probably not going to be friends with me. We don't share the same interests. We're not the same social status. Or in the kingdom that we're building here, we are a kingdom that elevates the powerless and the marginalized the most because we're representing the kingdom of God. Now, I'm probably going to lose some treasure in heaven for this, but, um, but most of you guys, almost none of you guys probably know this, and probably not a lot of our staff know as well, but in every place that we've occupied and rented from, I've always asked Rebecca or the other admins that I've had to say, hey, can you buy a gift card and write a thank you card for the maintenance staff here? And I'll hand deliver it to them. So every year when we're using the Meridian, we didn't give um, the gift card 100 bucks to the owner or to the management. We always gave it to the maintenance staff. And when we are using ambassador space, we've given 
gift cards to the maintenance staff. And then even here, I started to learn the staff's name that helped set up chairs or vacuum or help us in the sound booth because I want to be... I want to be like Jesus, right? That's why. And I, and I can't do that for everyone, right? But there are a few people in our lives, in our companies, in our families, that we, that we say, I'm going to love you the way that God, like I'm going to love you in this other kingdom way. I'm not going to walk through you like the other people of prestige in my company. I'm going to stop and say hello. I'm going to ask you about your family. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to save some spots during Christmas parties or during outings for people that I know no one's going to invite them, right? No one's inviting this kid in my class to a party, but I'm going to save a spot for him. I'm going to save a spot for her. That's, that's how Jesus sees his kingdom. Everyone else is catering to the powerful, to the people who can pay them back, to the people who can help them. And Jesus says, the people that I care about most are the children, the powerless, the rejected. Secondly, leadership in the world is about using power to be served. But in God's kingdom, leaders use power to serve others. And that's what he means when he says the least among you will be the greatest, or the greatest among you will be the servant. That confounded me for a long time. Like, should we never have positions of power and influence? Should we never have money or education? He's not saying that. He's not saying that we all need to get the most remedial jobs. What he's saying is that we, in whatever power and position we have, see ourselves as a servant to others. That we use our power and position to, to, to serve and for the well-being of everyone that we have influence and leadership of. That those people thrive that we have their best in mind, that we're about serving them and their dreams. So how am I serving those who I've been called to lead and influence? And are those that I'm leading honored, empowered, and thriving? Jesus bends a knee and washes his disciples' feet. And he says, do that for one another. Jesus, in this passage about children, is leveraging his respect and honor Everyone wants at this point of his ministry to pay homage to Jesus. Come to my house, use my money, um, let, teach in my synagogue. And Jesus is leveraging all of the ways that people see him and says, can you do that for this child? Can you do that for this person on the outskirts? Can you do that for the person who is struggling with mental illness? What you want to do for me, what you want to do for my father, do for this other person. You see how he's leveraging that? And I wonder again, if we're doing well socially in school, what does it look like to take people's favor and to say, and to include someone else and say, hey, I want, I want you to experience being accepted, uh, being seen, and being invited. What does that look like in junior high and high school? And what does that look like in all of our lives? But, but what I love about Jesus is that he doesn't just do this in positions of power and authority. Because some of us can wait. Well, when I'm CEO, I'll, I'll, I'll reach down and serve someone. When I have this money in the bank account, I'll, I'll go and do this, right? When I'm sitting at, the, at this table or when I'm at the top of the food chain, I'm not going to be a mean girl. I'm going to help someone. But then we think about Jesus on the cross. 
as he's staring down death. All of his power and prestige is stripped away and he's being executed as a criminal in dire pain. And he looks out and he says, John, take this woman into your home. Take care of my mom. Mary, take, take care of John as your son. And I wonder in the lowly places how we can still look out not look up in envy or in entitlement, but look out in the lowliest of places and there's still someone that God is calling us to serve. Jesus does this. I wonder what it looks like in our lives. Number three, leadership in the world is about self-protection. But in God's kingdom, leaders desires others to go further than them. In Luke chapter 9, verse 50, um, his disciples are trying to like build a moat be in Jesus' ministry, like protect his brand, right? And he's like, hey, don't cast out demons and use Jesus' name. Use your own, use your own brand, right? Like we, we got our own thing going. And Jesus says, don't stop them. If they're doing God's kingdom work, like help them do it. And it's almost an exact conversation from Numbers chapter 11. The elders of Israel during Moses' time is prophesying through the Spirit of God. They weren't false prophets. But some people were concerned about Moses' position and prestige. You're the prophet. If, if other people are speaking on behalf of God, what about you? So Joshua, the aide of Moses, right, who becomes a great leader himself, runs up to Moses and says, Moses, stop them. Moses, my Lord, stop them. And, and look at his response. Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Oh man, so good. <laughs> Moses is not, he's leading not out of his ego. Like he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything from his people. He doesn't need his position. He doesn't need uh, their, his, their, their view of him, their honor. What he needs is for people to love God and to be used by them. And when he's seeing other people take the role in that moment that he has, he's like, could everyone take my role? Like, could this be, Lord, do this for everyone and let me fade into the background so that you're glorified. God's kingdom leaders, we don't self-protect because it wasn't ours to begin with. He gave it to us. And we're at the bottom trying to lift other people so that they go beyond us. You know, I think about the older brothers and sisters at Renew for me. Like I think about Matt and Deanna and when uh, their first conversation with me and Nina when they came to our church is, hey, we don't have that much time here, maybe a year and a half. How can we serve Renew? We love this church. How do we serve it? And then everything we, we've asked of them. <laughs> they helped Nina hold down the fort in children's ministry. I asked them to go from small group to small group talking about RFKC. And they just looked out and, and cared for our community. Matt sat down with me and said, hey, here are the things that I'm, I'm thinking about your church. You don't have to do any of them. I just want to put it on the table. 
And I think about so many older brothers and sisters who have come to our church and have blessed our community with that posture of just like, we don't have entitlement issues. We don't need you to sing the songs we've heard all our lives or do the church the same way. We want this community to thrive and we want the next generation to have a church to call their own. And I want to like immortalize those people, <laughs> Pastor Christy, you know, Dr. Ken, Stephen Patty, the Cultivate Group. There's just so many that God's gifted us and said, be like them when you're in your 50s, 60s, and 70s. Like all of us who are in our 40s and 30s who are carrying these badges, founder of the church, here at year two, you know? How do we surrender all of, all of the things we've done over the next 30 years and take the posture of our older brothers and sisters and just gift this church to those younger than us and to say, go further, go further than we did. This church is yours. And, and I, I start to see this budding in my heart as I think about Erwin and Kevin, that when they preach an amazing sermon, I get more joy from their sermons than I do my own. And I just want God to grow that heart in me and for all of us, that we want people to go beyond us in our industry, in our ministry, in our family. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. Lastly, <clears throat> leadership in the world calls others to sacrifice but leadership in God's kingdom sacrifices for others. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of man. And then I think about our commission in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So when I have power, am I willing to defer to others? Am I willing to sacrifice more than those whom I'm asking to serve? You know, I think about um, my role as a husband. I believe that husbands are the head of their household and are to lead the family. I, I get to be one of the elders of the church, leading the church. But, but I have this, um, I, I want to do this. I'm definitely not perfect at it. But I'm thinking, man, how did Jesus serve the church? And what does that look like for me as a husband? I think that looks like me making sure that my wife's dreams and talents are being fulfilled through our family, which means I'm listening to her. I'm cultivating her gifts, right? When we argue, when I'm wrong, it means that I'm, I'm to apologize first. That's what it means to lay down your life. When we both have preferences, it, it means that I let go of my preference for hers. Like, that's what Christian leadership looks like. And, and one of the things that I take most joy in as I see my relationship with Nina is that when we first got married, um, we, would eat, we would eat meals together, and she really didn't know how to, how to voice her desires. And so I got to order my two favorite dishes at every restaurant, one for her and one for me. And I was so happy, right? Everywhere I went, I'm like, I want to eat this, and I want to try this. And Nina's like, that's great. And then 10 years later, she orders her own dish. And more than that, she says, I found my voice through our marriage. Like, I, I found my voice to challenge you. And, and that challenge has steered us away so many pitfalls, so many poor decisions. I found my voice in, in, in how God's called my, my purpose in life. And I hope that all the staff and members of our church you know, we would, that I would be able to help them find their voice, 
that would, uh, they would feel like they are making a mark in our church, that their gifts are being uh, used in our community. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're really grateful that you'd spend time listening to the sermon series. And we also wanted to point you to a few other resources. My wife and I wrote a children's book collection helping kids bridge their faith with God's calling in their life as a businessman, as a doctor or nurse, and as a creative. Secondly, we wrote an adulting journal, which helps young adults think through this transition into adulthood, whether it's transitions in friendship, family, faith, or calling. And lastly, I want to point to a podcast that myself and another church member, Roy Kim, who's a therapist, co-host together. It's called The Same Boat. We talk about relationships. We just finished um, a series on dating. We think back to an English ministry church, and we just tackle all kinds of topics that are relevant to our life. I hope that uh, those resources enrich your life as well. And lastly, if you're looking to partner with us, on our website, we have a give section. You could give to our general fund and continue to serve our church through um, through partnering with us financially. But if you scroll down, we have quite a few local missionaries that have called Renew Home. If you read their bio, there's also a section to give to each one of our local missionaries. We hope that all of them would be fully funded going into this year. God bless you. Thanks so much for being with us. And uh, hope to hear, hope to uh, have you join us again.